Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And we're two associate editors on the journal with a particular interest in social media and getting the message of the journal out there. So what we're going to be doing this week is talking about the primary survey. This is a, a brief, what would you say, Rick? An overview. An overview, an amuse-bouche of what the journal has to offer. An aperitif. An aperitif, an aperitif even sounds better again. I think it's just to give you an idea of what's out there, because the EMJ has a very broad church of interests and a very broad readership, and I think the journal this week does reflect that. So the first paper I want to sort of look at is this paper looking at emergency triage and treatment courses based in Guatemala. Now, I've never been to Guatemala. Rick, been to Guatemala? I've never been, actually. No, but I'm pretty certain that they need emergency triage and treatment. It's important wherever you go. But one of the issues with triage and treatment concepts and plans is that they do have a degree of location specificity. So in this particular study, this was based on a course, the ETAP course, developed by the World Health Organization back in 1999, looking at the, its management of childhood illnesses across the world. It was based as a hospital-based system for health service and then put into limited resource settings. So this is how it works in reality. Um, they study, they took ETAT and they introduced it into primary care settings and tried to make it self-sustaining locally, leading courses within Guatemala. And what is this about? Well, it's five modules that cover triage, airway breathing, circulation, coma convulsions, dehydration. That was done over 16 hours. So like a mini APLS or PLS type course, but relevant to the patients out there. So there's two courses in October 2012, and subsequently candidates were asked to sort of undergo a written test and survey about confidence, and immediately afterwards, and then again at three, six, and 12 months, really looking for retention and understanding. They also did some clinical skills assessment. And during that time, they had a quality improvement program looking at identifying and remedying any problems that were found to be significant amongst the candidates in terms of their performance and learning. So what did they find? They found a big improvement in knowledge from the pre-course to post-course. I guess you'd expect that. And they looked at the retention. Now, I think this is something which has happened in a lot of courses that people don't look at longer term retention. They've actually found it was pretty good here. In terms of confidence, because confidence, competence, are they related? We've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, it did start to reduce over time, but not statistically. And it was better than before they did the course entirely. So what does this tell us? tells us that the ETAP course, big course, set up, World Health Organization funded and supported, it does improve the ability of the local people to care for children, and that's got to be a good thing. And I think if you're interested in world medicine, this will be a paper you want to have a look at. Absolutely. I think this paper is particularly relevant if you work in resource-limited environments. It shows an intervention that might improve care for children. It's also a very good example of educational research, nice example of some methodologies. So moving on, I also noticed that there was a very interesting paper on log rolls in major trauma. Log rolls? Like Swiss rolls, chocolate rolls? A little bit like them, except we roll the patients rather than the chocolate. You see, I'm not a big fan of this. Well, why is that? Basically, years and years and years ago, um, there were papers looking at how much the spine moved when you log rolled people around. They weren't particularly great papers because we didn't have the technology to have a look at it back then. And I was kind of convinced that it made a difference. And that think as a trauma person, I've seen people who have got a degree of hemodynamic instability, who then you log roll them and you convert that into fairly significant instability. And I'm sure it's because you're dislodging clots and messing with the pelvis. Anecdotal evidence, I know, but 
it, it kind of always made me feel a bit uncomfortable. And also, what do you gain by rolling somebody to 90? You can usually see something through a small roll. So that was where I came into this. Yeah, the log roll has been a foundation of how we examine patients with trauma for many years. It's just an established part of our practice. It's what we do. And in this paper, the authors were looking at the value of doing the log roll in unconscious adult patients with trauma. And this is really interesting because I think when you have a conscious patient who comes in with trauma, the question about whether you need to log roll them is very different to an unconscious patient who can't tell you where it hurts. You're simply going to be looking for any visible abnormalities, any deformities, palpating again for any deformities, any obvious signs of a bony injury. So we're looking for different things and these authors were trying to look back at this retrospective registry over a couple of years in unconscious trauma patients to see whether the findings on log roll were accurate enough to predict the findings on a CT scan. So essentially telling us whether perhaps we might be able to use a log roll to obviate the need for spinal CT. And the bottom line is we absolutely cannot rule out spinal injuries in unconscious trauma patients using a log roll. In fact, out of the 403 patients in this study, 85% of them had no abnormal findings on a log roll. So it's a waste of time? It's a total waste of time. So if you're actually suspecting a spinal injury, doing a log roll as a diagnostic test in an unconscious patient with trauma is absolutely useless. And don't get me started on whether or not you do a PR at the same time. That's a topic for another day, but probably is almost as futile. And that was done in Australia, wasn't it? So that was uh, Mega, Veet and colleagues out in Australia. So, you know, they've got a lot of experience out in trauma in there. So I think it's an interesting paper. And certainly if you're a trauma team leader, it's, I think you should read this. It's, yeah, it's very important evidence. Now, we can't use this to say, don't do a log roll in your unconscious trauma patients, because there might be other reasons why you do a log roll. There might be an exsanguinating hemorrhage on the back of the patient that you'll yeah. only find if you do a log roll. And you'll know that on an individual basis. What it's telling us is that we shouldn't be using this as a diagnosis diagnostic test to decide whether we need spinal imaging in those patients. More diagnostics this month. So we have a paper from Canada by Terry Varshney and colleagues looking at point of care ultrasound for children. Now point of care ultrasound of the lungs is something we both do and we pick up lots and lots of things in adults. Done it a little bit in kids but not so much. So I was really interested to have a look at this. Prospective cross-sectional study in PED, so paediatric emergency departments, looking at kids less than two with a respiratory tract infection and wheeze. And basically what they did is they ultrasounded them looking for B-lines and three or more B-lines in intercostal spaces, and pleural abnormalities and consolidation. And actually in children, because they're quite small, an ultrasound is obviously affected by the distance from the probe to the pathology. You do actually get pretty good images in the, in the children I've done. And what they found is that in the groups, none of the children who had asthma turned up with a positive finding in ultrasound, whereas in pneumonia, all of them were positive. Now, it's a relatively small study. There's only, I think, in the range of about 94 patients in this. So I don't think it's absolutely conclusive. But it does look as though this modality might be quite useful as a screening test. Avoids doing x-rays is a potential. This isn't definitive evidence here. But again, when we start thinking about resource-poor environments, ultrasounds are quite portable. Um, an x-ray technology might be more difficult. So I think this is something which is not definitive, but if you're interested in paediatric emergency medicine or in point-of-care ultrasound, I would have a look at this. I think it's quite interesting.
Absolutely, and there's always the potential that this is tomorrow's medicine in paediatrics. X-rays use radiation. Uh, they're not a particularly sensitive test. Do you know what? I think if ultrasound, and this is completely, I'm sure people will object to me saying this, I'm sure if ultrasound was invented before x-rays, we would have a very different approach to diagnostic interventions in our emergency departments. It just happens that x-rays came first. You're absolutely right. And could you imagine, having seen studies in the literature now, that evaluate the use of x-ray compared to the reference standard of ultrasound? I don't think x-ray would take off. No, I mean, for pneumothoraces and all sorts. I mean, it's really interesting. So we are where we are, history as it is, and there you go. Where next? So I was also interested in uh, a study looking at patients' perceptions of the strength of the communication between the clinician and themselves in the emergency department and the potential for those patients to go on and develop subsequent post-traumatic stress disorder. So this study was a secondary analysis from a study called the REACH study. It was Bernard Chang and his colleagues. They come from New York. And they were looking at patients with suspected acute coronary syndromes. They asked the patients to rate the strength of the communication between themselves and the clinician. And then they ran some questionnaires to evaluate the likely incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder in those patients. And... Interestingly, they did find that there was an association between the patient's perception of the strength of the communication that they had with the clinician and the potential incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, there was a surrogate outcome here. We weren't actually looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. We were looking at questionnaires that predict that happening in the future. But there was an important correlation. And I think it's just something for us to really take note of. Even just seeing that association means that it's, we should pay more attention to the strength of our communication. It will affect potentially not just patients' perceptions of how good a consultation it was, but also their stress going into the future. And communication and how people feel and how people understand affect real outcomes which are relevant to patients. It's not just about whether you can prescribe the right drug, it's about the whole package of care. I think we increasingly recognise that in the ED now. Absolutely. We often think that communication is a sort of touchy-feely aspect of our care. Here we've got a suggestion that good communication correlates with good outcomes for patients. Excellent. To go completely in the opposite direction, I think to some extent, um, we've got a paper from Caroline Leach and Keith Porter. Caroline Leach, who originally trained here in Manchester with us before she went off to the West Midlands, um, and is now an associate editor on the journal, which is fantastic. So welcome, Caroline. Uh, she and Keith Porter, another expert in trauma and pre-hospital care, have looked at an experiment study of pre-hospital emergency amputation. So pretty hardcore stuff, looking at ways in which we can, in the very, very rare circumstances where you have to do a pre-hospital amputation of a limb, methods of doing this. So this was a cadaver-based study looking at the amputation of a distal femur. Um, and they looked at various different techniques, so using... Um, giggly sores, using um, scalpels to get through the soft tissues, and also using something called a holmatro. Holmatro is actually a brand name for one of these jaws of life thing we can actually clamp down. It's quite interesting looking at time to do it, looking at the exposure and looking at the splattering, because actually when you do these things in the pre-hospital environment, or even the hospital environment, there are risks to rescuers from blood-borne diseases and stuff like that. Um, and essentially what they found was that you can, you can do this in the pre-hospital environment, um, you can do it with 
fire devices such as the whole macho and the jaws of life thing but you probably wouldn't want to do that unless it was absolutely an extremist and their conclusion essentially was that if you have to do this you can do it with a scalpel paramedic shores to get through the bone and then if you need to something like a giggly saw or even just using a small hacksaw which you will find on many fire appliances so an interesting study pretty hardcore stuff i don't think i want to be in that situation but if i had to i've now read the paper i know what to do Absolutely, and this kind of paper helps us to be mentally prepared for that kind of situation. Interestingly, it took a maximum of 91 seconds to them, for them to affect the amputation in this study. I think that's pretty quick. I also thought that uh, there was another interesting piece on acute coronary syndrome some, from some good friends and colleagues of ours from Australia and from Canada. Uh, this was led by Dylan Flores from Australia who works with Louise Cullen. I'm sure everybody knows that group from some of the outstanding research they've produced looking at the diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes in the emergency department. And in this study, they were looking to validate a decision rule that you've probably heard of, the EDAX score. This is a troponin-based algorithm that adds in a lot of clinical information about the patient as well and can rule out acute coronary syndromes with troponin tests done on arrival and two hours later. There are some pretty good data about this two-hour algorithm already in the literature, and now we've got a retrospective validation of EDAX from 763 patients who presented with suspected acute coronary syndromes to St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. So it's a secondary analysis from this study. It's an old one from 2000 to 2003. But they looked at the value of the EDAX score. So if patients have an EDAX score of less than 16, no ischemia on the ECG, and normal troponin concentrations within two hours of arrival, then actually this algorithm could identify 40% of patients as eligible for discharge with a 100% sensitivity for a major adverse cardiac events. So an old study, secondary analysis, but some more important data coming out about the EDAX score. I think this and a number of other studies, including ones which of course you're involved in, Rick, um, and myself, are looking at this early discharge group. And I think when we're looking at trials, we need to be careful that we get this balance of early discharge, safe discharge, good, and just getting the proportions right about how many patients and what the risks associated with increasing the number of patients who get early discharge. This is increasingly good evidence that a combination of clinical factors plus early biomarkers such as high sensitive troponin is an effective way if you understand how to use these tests properly. Absolutely. And you know what I like about scores like EDAX is it doesn't just take account of the troponin. And we've published quite a few things to do with just the troponin, which are important. And of course we use troponin as a fantastic test to exclude an acute myocardial infarction. But I like even more the scores that incorporate clinical information too. That's what our own max rule does and troponin only max rule does. And that's what EDAX does too. It combines all of that information and identifies a group that you could really say, actually it's okay for you to go home after this test. Fantastic. So those are the big ones. Those are the big uh, papers, but there are more in the journal as always. Please pick it up, have a read, get online, reply to the studies, talk to us on Twitter, talk to us on Facebook. We're doing lots more things of late. The blog site is doing really well. We've got some new social media editors, Robert Lloyd and Chris Gray, who are now producing some blogs on a regular basis. So I want you to have a look at those and see what you think. And we'll talk about some of the papers on the blog as well in a little bit more depth. But for this month, Rick, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Simon. See you soon.